Hello, and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, PR consultant and freelance writer, tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours owner and host of this podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. For this week's episode and the last episode of the year before I head to Canada for the holidays, I chatted with architect Aziza Shalni by telephone. I first learned about Aziza and her work when she was featured in Brown Book magazine, a publication I used to write for. I knew immediately that I needed to meet her given that we have swapped home countries. You see, Aziza lives between Toronto, Canada, where she works as an architect, but is also a tenured professor at the University of Toronto, and Fez, Morocco, where her architecture firm is located. But it was after a recent feature in the New York Times about the City Harazam thermal baths restoration project that I finally reached Aziza in her Toronto office. The thermal baths, near Fez, not only have healing properties, but the complex that Jean-Francois Zavacco designed in 1960 is done in brutalism style. Her credits also include transforming a slaughterhouse in Casablanca into a cultural space, working on the restoration of the oldest mosque in the world, the Carraway University and Fez, and more. In fact, in the interview, she shares details about a project she's wrapping up in southern Morocco this month. So let's listen in as Aziza talks about post-independence architecture, the project she's worked on and currently working on, the role of the architect, and the state of architecture in Morocco today. Are you in Marrakesh? Yeah, I am. And it's really lovely weather. But I'm going to be in Toronto in three oh, weeks. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you're going to be here where I'm going to be in Morocco. So oh. we're, we're going to be missing each other. Uh, when are you flying to Morocco? <laughs> I think around the 5th of December. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be back at the beginning of January for the start of class. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I was there for two uh, events, you know, mm-hmm. like in October. They were just uh, back to back and it was like crazy. I had to fly, come back. Okay. It's quite short and uh, intense. Yeah, so my, my whole family is there. My office is in Fez. You know, mm-hmm. I have a small office here in Toronto and one in Fez, which is my hometown. So, yeah. yes, I'm uh, back and forth. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's... Nomad. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I'm so interested because we've kind of like swapped countries, but we both kind of go between the two. So um, it's really cool to to hear your story. And then when I saw the New York Times article about the city Harazam come out, I was like, I need to contact Aziza and we need to do a podcast interview. <laughs> so oh, that's very kind. So thank, thank you so much. So, well, yes. thank you. No, no, I, I am so glad because it's true that we don't, you know, like very often, you know, like what we do is not as um, spoken about, you know, mm-hmm. like as what, you know, uh, potentially some uh, foreigners are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, that, you know, kind of there is a very big, um, I would say there is a young generation of, uh, of Moroccans that yeah. are, you know, either locally rooted or have now, you know, like roots, you know, like around the mm-hmm. world and that are doing some very interesting work, you know, like every time I come back, I'm, meet, I'm meeting, you know, like amazing people. Because again, yes. I also feel like there's more, and correct me if I'm wrong, but more people... Yeah are coming back to Morocco as well, rather than feeling you need to leave to do things. Yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. You're from Fez, but you live in Toronto. Yeah. You have offices in both Toronto and Fez. I live in, 
in uh, Toronto. I mm-hmm. would say, you know, come to Toronto first because I'm, I'm a professor. So I teach, uh, you know, from September to uh, April and from mid-April uh, on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am in Morocco. But in between, like, for example, here, like I told you, I was, you know, like already twice, you know, in Morocco in October. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, you know I'm going to be there for a month, you know, in December. Yeah. So, you know, like I would say that uh, probably a third of my time is in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other two-thirds is in Canada or, you know, like across the yeah. globe now. Exactly. And so you're an architect at the U of T, but you also have your own architectural firm. So I'm just wondering, how did you end up as an architect? Uh, how I end up becoming an architect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice, that's an interesting story because um, I guess um, one of the reasons was was my aunt had an aunt who was an architect and I was very close to her and she was living in Fez. She was our neighbor and then, you know, like I, she would, you know, kind of show me her, uh, her projects. I would go to her office and I kind of really loved the, the fact that you would create spaces and how spaces uh, can affect your mood. Uh, can affect, you know, your daily life. Mm -hmm. And so I think from a very early age, I was, you know, kind of exposed to, let's say, the power, you know, of architecture, you know, Mm -hmm. how how architecture affects your daily life, your daily experience, but also your emotions. And so coming from such a a city such as Fez, where the architecture, both interior, is so rich, I'm just wondering what influences you as an architect? (sighs) <laughs> oh my God, uh, so many things, you know, like mm-hmm. um, so many things. But, you know, in uh, um, retrospect, you know, like when I think about it, I think that um, uh, I was obviously, you know, in, in my youth, I was very affected by the, the Medina of Fez. I mean, for a child, you know, like it was an amazing maze. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, the, the souks and the smells and and the light being uh, filtered by the canopies and, um, you know, and then, you know, how the streets are so crowded and one enters uh, in this in those um, courtyards that are yeah. very peaceful. And like my best friend, uh, grandmother had a house in the Medina. So I would say, you know, like every other weekend, we were there and and I think you know kind of the contrast also between the very blank facades and the interior filled with mosaics and and plaster mm-hmm. work and very detailed woodwork I think that from an early age I was very uh, sensitive to this and I think that this in a way stayed with me and another thing that I understood actually uh, later on is that uh, my grandmother used to take me with her to see the Harazim um, and yes. she would come you know twice a year and she would do a cure, a water cure to heal her uh, um, rheumatisms in Sidi Harazam. And I have very vivid uh, memories of me being there with her, staying there. And who designed Sidi Harazam is Jean-François Zivaco. Mm-hmm. And it's only after I started going to um, graduate school, you know, because I actually have a degree first in civil engineering and structural engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and and it's only when I started studying architecture, it was in 2000, uh, since like such a long time ago <laughs> that when I would return, you know, when I return, I remember very well the first, my first semester in graduate school, uh, the 
the winter time, I, you know, because the water is warm in Sidi Harazem, I would yeah. go to the pool and I, and I used to swim there when it used to be uh, co-ed, not such a long time ago, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and then I realized, oh my God, but this space is incredible. And then, then I started, after just one semester of, of architecture, I was like astounded, but I, I started to, to comprehend the space. I loved it before, but I couldn't comprehend what made it so special. And then I started uh, uh, researching it, and this is actually where I totally uh, discovered uh, a part of, of the architecture of Morocco that's very uh, little known. Mm-hmm. It's the architecture of post-independence, modern yes. from the 60s and 70s. So I would say that's actually my biggest source of inspiration mm-hmm. because it integrates the modern language, but with a lot of local sensitivities. Absolutely. And so let's talk a bit about your projects because you were involved in the City Harazam Baths Restoration Project. I am still. It's still ongoing. <laughs> okay. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about that project? Yes, yeah, sure, sure. So the uh, thermal bath um, complex uh, was designed in the 60s mm-hmm. by Jean-François Zivago, who is an incredible uh, Moroccan architect, of course, second uh, of origin. I mm-hmm. never say French architect. He was born and raised and buried in Morocco mm-hmm. uh, and worked on his life in Morocco. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a complex that's completely, was, or whose architecture is, in, is uh, stunning. It's extremely unique. Uh, it's composed of several sets of, uh, of buildings hotels, bungalows, two markets, an amazing uh, swimming pool. And and water runs through the entire project, through fountains, through little uh, segias in the pool. And sadly, what happened to, to this complex is that as Moroccan uh, used to love uh, uh, thermalism as, uh, as, let's say, you know, as a leisure activity or as mm-hmm. a, the main holiday destination that was in the time of my father and my grandparents and beyond, uh, they started to go to the beach. So beach Beach, um, tourism supplanted um, mm-hmm. thermalism. And so the uh, thermal bath uh, complex of City Harrison started to close down, to be uh, uh, run down, only a few places, you know, kind of remained open. But yet a lot of Moroccans still believe in the healing power yeah. of the spring because there is a holy figure, a saint, uh, his name is City Harrison, that's mm-hmm. buried right next to the spring. And so this the, the place started almost becoming, you know, kind of a paradox. It was, most of it was uh, abandoned and mm-hmm. closed down, yet a lot of uh, uh, Moroccans were still coming uh, for the water and to get the baraka, which is in a way the, the blessing of, of the saint to mm-hmm. uh, heal them from, you know, like a variety of different um, diseases. So, mm-hmm. so I was... Um, uh, in a way, this project is uh, some type of an activist project because I've been look, uh, seeing it uh, throughout the years, uh, let's say, decay. And I applied for a grant uh, of the Getty Foundation called Keeping It Modern that basically uh, g- gave us the fund to work with the owner of the building, which is the CDG, the State Pension Fund, okay. um, to develop a conservation um, management plan for the whole complex and in collaboration with the local population. Wow. And so it's still ongoing. What um, aspects remain of the project? 
Uh, well, we just well uh, just so that you know, we started with zero information. There were no plans. The CDG had the flood in its archive, so we had no plans wow. of the station. There were no archival material, so uh, it was kind of an investigative job. I had to go to three different archives and continent, you know, to mm-hmm. retrieve plans from old uh, draftsmen of Zivaco. It was actually it was a fascinating adventure. You know, we we uh, interviewed collaborators, uh, family of Zivaco. Uh, people that worked in the hotel, the gardener wow. of the complex was actually extremely helpful. And then we're able to piece the whole story of the genesis of the project and then the whole story of how it evolved, how we started uh, to, uh, to close down. That one of the most interesting story is, is uh, or stories that we collected was uh, was the stories of, of people that are now in their uh, 80s, some of them in their early 90s, that still remember when the, they used to live in in the oasis of Sidi Harazam, that they were all moved, their village was moved five kilometers away to uh, give space to build this modern, beautiful uh, station. And this was a very common approach in the 60s. It was called uh, tabula rasa, which in Latin means that we just, you know, empty the whole uh, table. So we just move everything and we separate functions. Uh, the station is for tourism and let's let people live far away. And 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 the people we, we, we found that are in the 80s and 90s are are still uh, traumatized uh, by that move. And some of them went maybe once to visit Sidi Harzim, and it's five kilometers away, because that move was actually um, so uh, painful. Mm-hmm. And this is a story of modernism that we, we very often don't tell. We only mm-hmm. just tell the, the good things that modernism did. It made yeah. things more uh, uh, sanitized and more yes. uh, heroic mm-hmm. and more beautiful. But these stories I found very um, heartening, but they're also part of the um, and the history of, of, of the space. So uh, if in any case, so where we are today in December, we're going to wrap up the, the uh, Getty grant, um, and uh, which which uh, uh, technically we did the entire surveys of each building, how they used to be, uh, what happened to them, if they had any uh, technical problems, how to rehabilitate them. And, and this is a very interesting approach that's, I mean, it's the first time that it's being done in Morocco, which mm-hmm. is called the, uh, the Conservation Management Plan, you know, yeah. What are things that are worthy of preserving? What are things that we can transform? They're not as important. So it's a it's, it's a method that actually uh, the Getty Foundation uh, trained me to do. I highly um, thank them for it. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be done in December. And the next move would be to do phase one. And phase one is to rehabilitate the hotel. Yeah. Uh, that has um, 50 rooms, and to also move the exit to, to rehabilitate part of the abandoned market to house the exhibition that we did on the whole process, and that has three parts, past, present, and future of Sidi Harazam. So this exhibition was in the Galerie CDG in Rabat uh, mm-hmm. this summer, and now we uh, we are uh, moving it uh, to tell the, the, the story of the space, but also the story of its uh, future. Um, (laughs) I think you touched on a really interesting point because I, I wanted to ask in your opinion, what's the role of the architect? Well, I personally think the role of the architect is to be a, a citizen and to be an uh, activist and to mm-hmm. act for the um, greater good, uh, both the greater good of, of uh, citizens and users, but also the, the greater good of the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a very interesting one because given that you do a lot of work in Morocco, I noticed um, you do work on the eco 
ecology and um, particularly in the tourism industry. And that is something that I think is very concerning for Morocco and very timely. Absolutely. Um, Yes, yes, absolutely. And so you did something, I was reading about the Fez River rehabilitation. Yeah. What was that project? Uh, That's an interesting one because it's a project (laughs) that uh, was my uh, thesis when I was at Harvard. um, Mm -hmm. And that um, then I started uh, working on uh, right after I finished my thesis with the World Works uh, Department of the, of the city of Fez, and mm-hmm. and it started really as an infrastructure project. Is that how can we divert all of the sewage that went into the the uh, Fez River and that made actually people uh, cover it and and turn their back onto it? Mm-hmm. Whereas it's actually you know was such an important feature for the city. It's like the River Thames for London yeah. or or La Salle in Paris, but it was becoming an uh, open air um, um, sewage and so uh, you know like I would say that my role was really to to develop the vision and this strategic plan for it is that what would happen if we divert the sewage and the water becomes clean what are the type of uh, public spaces you know that Mm -hmm. that could happen and how can we make it more pedestrian and avoid having their plaza with all cars and parking Mm -hmm. and then that's where my role stopped and then you know like unfortunately it's a too long story to say Mm -hmm. but I couldn't I was not allowed to continue to work on the project yeah. despite the fact that we won the whole same award which is the highest award for sustainability you know like in the world mm-hmm. um and uh, but uh, but you know i mean i mean for me the way that i speak about this uh, this project i think is very important for a uh, young architects or you know architects to 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 hear that sometimes what we had in mind might not you know the, the design exactly the type of tile and the type of bench and and, mm-hmm. and you know like everything that we had in mind might not happen in those type of large municipal project. But if the big idea happens, which for me, it did happen, I think it's a very big uh, satisfaction is, mm-hmm. is the one where, you know, like, I mean, I think the impact we are, would have been horrible is that the, the river was being covered illegally by the local population was tired of its thinking. And, mm-hmm. and then, um, and, and so slowly that covering would have become a road. And we know examples of Medina's like the Medina of, of Tunis is a very good example as soon as you start letting roads enter and cars enter inside a fabric a historic fabric that's mainly pedestrian then cars starts to go you know a little bit further and further yeah. and further houses being destroyed and then you completely change what made the, the very soul of the medina office which is this pedestrian mm-hmm. network you yeah. know like among you know like other things mm-hmm. so for me the fact that that was you know like avoided by daylighting the river you know like uncovering you know like the portion of the river that was recently covered and to reopen it uh, visually you know like two people mm-hmm. to reopen it to the bridges you know historic yeah. bridges for me if that worked if the big idea worked that's a good step you know already yeah. and i think young architects need to know that if if a project is uh, solid enough i would speak about uh, resilience you know like of a project and, and, and of an idea then it would still uh, survive despite if your design you know or in a way you have to put your ego a little bit on on, on the back seat and it's not about your exact design or tile or you know like um, but i think it's more about the larger idea and the impact that it would have on the population mm-hmm. and for 10 projects that might fail if one works that's in a way my motto you know i'm ready for failure but i would just stand up again and start something again okay just a quick time out because if you're keen to explore morocco let me tell you about sun trails a private tour operator based in marrakesh 
I've had the pleasure of being both a paying customer on a holiday through the south of Morocco, but also just traveling with Chris because he is a friend after all. That aside, Chris is genuinely passionate about discovering the hidden gems dotting the country and meeting people like architects and musicians undertaking interesting initiatives. He then puts all of this together in an itinerary for guests who are looking for more than just a standard tour of Morocco. He's been on the podcast twice, so if you want to find out more, check out episode 1 and episode 19, or get in touch with me via mandyandmorocco.com, and I'll happily put you in touch. And also in Fez, the, minist- the Moroccan Ministry of Culture chose your firm to rehabilitate the Carawane Library in the Fez Medina, which yes. was founded in yes. 750. What was that project all yeah. about? Well, uh, what's very interesting is the project is all about women. The library was created by a woman, uh, mosque. Uh, it's a woman in the Ministry of Culture who um, hired me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the field of rehabilitation is very, very male, you know, oriented in yes. uh, in Morocco. And and then I, myself, a woman, very woman power uh, driven project. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's the oldest running library uh, uh, in the world. So it was a great uh, honor for me. It's in my hometown. And even if I lived in my hometown my whole life, I never was able to enter inside this library because you you, you needed to be there, you know, like a, a, a university student or a, a researcher. Mm-hmm. And so I would uh, pass by it over and over and I would just see the gate and I know that I cannot enter. And so let's say that, again, uh, my you know approach for the, for the rehabilitation, that I'm not going to get into the technical aspect of it because we had no plans. Uh, we <laughs> found that the small uh, river was running beneath the foundation and it was just, uh, we, we discovered things as, you know, like, like we went along. <laughs> I could speak about this for hours. <laughs> but the big idea about the, the library is to be able to open its collection uh, to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to have a, um, you know, like an exhibition room where some of the beautiful uh, manuscripts could, could be open to the public and mainly to the Moroccans and, of course, also to tourists. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've been uh, working on. So in the process, the, the, the library who belongs to the Ministry of the Habus mm-hmm. uh, um, was actually run by the Ministry of Culture. And so in the process of the project, transferred back to the Ministry of the Habus because also part of the program was to have a lab, a restoration lab, because a lot of the books were in very poor condition. So I won't even spare you the details of how we, we entered all this machinery, you know, like scans and wow. so forth into very small doors. Uh-huh. Uh, that was really a Tetris game. Uh, <laughs> Particularly in the, in and, the Medina of Fez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, and even through the doors inside the library, some doors were too small. It was a headache. But, but in any case, so we managed. So now the library has a restoration lab, uh, has also like a small cafe and a small, you know, like exhibition room. And, and I'm hoping that the, you know, like exhibition room and the cafe will be able to open to the public soon. Because of the transfer for the Ministry of Culture to the Habus, the Habus are the uh, religious uh, ministry of, of Morocco because the library is connected to, to the mosques. And they're not used to running cafes and mm-hmm. exhibition uh, spaces. So I think uh, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that it will happen. It might just, we just need to be like a little bit patient. But the good news is that we did the space. We have the showcases for the books, you know, the display cases. We did a whole model of the whole uh, complex, the Caroline complex, for people to understand how the library is integrated within that architectural complex. The, the, the cafe has its own kitchen. It's equipped. We have yeah. the furniture. 
here, people can sit. So it's uh, uh, ready to go. Nice. <laughs> but, but, but again, what I want to stress is also here again, the role of the architect is, you know, I could have just taken the job and fixed the cracks in the walls and fix everything mm-hmm. technical and called it a day and left. But I felt that my job was also to, let's say, educate the client and tell them, listen, you have the space to have an exhibition space. It's going to be very important. It's very impactful. The libraries today needs to be more about beyond just, you know, spaces for scholars and maybe also space, you know, to share, you know, some of the knowledge. I mean, there, there are books that date from the 9th century and 10th century. Wow. I felt so lucky to scroll. I mean, some of the books are just incredible. I mean, there are books about astronomy, about uh, mathematics, about medicine, about uh, dieting. There's a book from the 11th century wow. that would tell you, depending on your symptom, the color of your skin and of your tongue, which type of food you, and diet you should be eating. I mean, it's wow. fascinating. Very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, both projects, one is from very like 700s and another project is from the 1960s. So you touched on postmodern, sorry, post-independence architecture. I'm just wondering what is the, the state of architecture landscape in Morocco today? Um, I think the state of uh, of architecture in Morocco. I mean, it's it's similar to many uh, countries in the global south, where mm-hmm. you know, like it's undergoing because cities are you know like undergoing very rapid growth, um, and, and sometimes in a very short and tight uh, period of time, then construction sometimes happen very quickly. Architects don't have the time mm-hmm. to work on on uh, on project to do enough research. Um, that very often you have, uh, I mean, I think that this is not just in the global south, also in the north, in the global north, is that we have become more of a service uh, industry mm-hmm. uh, where we just have to work very, very quickly, uh, where I think that the, let's say, the, the role of the architect that was very present in the modern, uh, in, let's say, in the modernist era, you know, like yeah. uh, going from, you know, like I would say the 20s all the way to the 70s, where the, the architect had an important civil uh, uh, role, you know, like where it was his duty, um, you know, an architecture that that was following a certain uh, ethic that mm-hmm. had a certain uh, a, a positive impact. And unfortunately, I think we have lost the architect, lost in a way that role that we became like a lot of service provider we need to, we need to do things very very quickly and and sadly you know like i think when when we see a lot of uh, you know like architectural project now in morocco they don't i mean even the basic you know like uh, how they actually respond to climate or solar orientation yeah. or to new materials mm-hmm. or or to uh, levels of thermal comfort etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, you know like it's 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 not happening but on the other hand so this is one this is an overall state of architecture uh, today, mm-hmm. which is very sad, and it uh, saddens me. But at the same time, I think that there are some young, you know, like architectural uh, uh, practices that are starting to do very interesting work and works on the, mar- you know, like in the margins, and um, you know, work that that uh, sometimes crosses the boundaries between art, you know, like an architecture, mm-hmm. you know, like Zineb Andrasaki, um, and 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 I think it's an exciting moment. It's an exciting moment, but it's also one that's scary because. 
because I am very much aware that I'm in an extremely uh, privileged uh, mm -hmm. position to be a full tenure professor at the University of Toronto, to have access to research, mm -hmm. to have the luxury to pick certain projects versus, uh, versus you know, others. A lot of architects in Morocco need to take a project to just, um, let's say, uh, pay the bill. Yeah. It might not be a project that they... Uh, uh, believe in. Mm -hmm. It's for clients that have different sets of values that they do, but sadly it takes away from their time to do more um, creative work. Yeah. You, um, you've done everything from transforming the slaughterhouse in Casablanca into a cultural space to restoring the library um, in Fez. So I'm just wondering what kind of project do you prefer? Uh, well, I think that it's like when you fall in love, right? Is that mm -hmm. it's uh, it's uh, it's project for which you you have an affection. I mean, I, I think that you have you know like an affinity where mm -hmm. where you feel a deep connection. I think, and but also for me, it's project that I can feel can have a positive impact on the local population can make, you know, like, um, you know, can better the lifestyle of people, can create new public spaces for them or new spaces for uh, respite or can stop uh, pollution, you know, like, for mm -hmm. example. So so I wouldn't say that it's, um, you know, that that um, it's a specific type of project, but it's also, I think, the uh, encounter, you know, like with the local population, mm -hmm. with the local uh, leaders in the population, they need to also believe that, you uh, this uh, transformation is going to be beneficial to them, you know, etc. So I think it's a, a particular um, synergy, you know, like that needs to happen. But but if I look at, let's say, the, the threads of my work, there is also a component of, you know, like adaptive reuse. Is that why I built a new, if we already have mm -hmm. structures that are abandoned and we can just use them. I mean, it's the most uh, sustainable way to uh, advance, right? Yeah. Uh, and also another component, I think, is why Water, um, throughout my, yes. my work, because Morocco is actually arid with climate change, is going to become even more yep. um, like arid. So every single drop of water that we can uh, save and 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 uh, buildings can actually do a lot. They consume, you know, their roof can collect water, you know, like uh, their well, if their uh, toilets or their bathrooms or if their uh, gray water system is designed in a certain way can be reused. So I think water is also like a, a, a common thread um, or a common theme or a common uh, yeah. theme of interest in my projects. And that's actually what's going to be my next question is, you're doing, you do landscape projects as well. So I'm just wondering how you're addressing issues like the water, because that to me is something that's very scary for Morocco. The, the issues about landscape, yeah, you know, like I'm trained as a civil engineer as an, and as an architect. Uh, and yet I, I did find myself collaborating and hiring, you know, landscape architect, mm -hmm. because I felt that you, you know, a project needs to be a whole project. And I think I learned this actually from architects like Zivako. Zivako would also always design his building and the landscape, you know, like at the same time, because they're part of the same ecosystem. One needs to support the other. So in Morocco, when, you know, like you don't have, you know, like that much water, the key thing is you need to understand the local ecosystem and the local species. There are a lot of species that can 
survive very well with very little water. Mm-hmm. So this is um, number one. And then um, number two, uh, you know, kind of a, a building can also create more shaded uh, um, areas for um, certain plants to uh, thrive. Uh, can also, you know, like the gray water from a building, you know, can be used, you know, like to uh, irrigate and sustain a landscape that, you know, like otherwise, you know, could not have been sustained mm-hmm. instead of just going into the uh, sewage, uh, you know, like et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think, I mean, uh, uh, issues of landscape in countries like Morocco or like in California, mm-hmm. for example, that are going to become even more arid. I think that we have to rethink our buildings um, in, in a way that could uh, sustain the landscape, you know, around them. I would like to speak about a project I'm working on right now mm-hmm. in La Yune with the Fondation Fusbukra. Uh, uh, um, so speaking about, you know, an arid place that's very arid, but it's extremely beautiful. It's, a, you know, a region in Morocco where the, the Sahara Desert mm-hmm. meets the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And a city where a portion of the population has been, um, uh, you know, used to be nomads and has settled for maybe one, two, at maximum three um, generations. So their, let's say, needs in public space are very different for somebody, let's say, with a heritage that's uh, for a long heritage um, and living in cities. So I was asked by the Foundation for Sbukra to do a public uh, participatory uh, process with the women, youth, and and children, uh, who are people that are usually not sitting at the table when uh, plans of cities are made mm-hmm. and plans for uh, public spaces are made, and to uh, ask them how they would like to, trans- to transform, if they could, a set of different types of uh, p- uh, public spaces. And we developed an app and a whole uh, method on how we engage wow. this population that, that sometimes cannot even uh, read and write. Mm-hmm. And the results, we're going to finish the project in January, and the idea to select few of those public spaces and with the people in their uh, neighborhood to actually uh, upgrade them and re-adapt them to fit the, the needs of the users. And, and I think this is going to be very new for, uh, for Morocco, yeah. you know, to be doing it with the um, uh, municipal, you know, like uh, entity. Um, and I'm extremely, extremely, you know, like excited about it. And what has been the um, feedback from the, the women that have been at the table? Oh, uh, so the, the feedback, I mean, first of all, is that is uh, thank you. It's the yeah. first time that we are, you know, asking our opinion. And they were so excited that I was, you know, like a woman uh, myself. Yeah. And then um, for them, it was very interesting because the, the, the first issue was one of uh, greenery. Uh, you know, like they they felt that, um, you know, like their, let's say in their um, imaginaire, uh, their uh, outing would always be in an uh, oasis. Yeah. And they felt that the, the uh, public spaces that were uh, offered to them in had a lot of paving and hard surfaces. And mm. and so they kind of wanted to have this uh, reconnection, direct reconnection with nature. Another one was very interesting. They don't want to be sitting in benches. They are used to sitting on the floor. They want to be sitting on the floor uh, picnic style. Yeah. They also want to have zones that are more secluded to the view so that they can sit with their families and not being seen by other people. And you have issues of security. Yeah. And the most interesting one also is the one where they want to use the public spaces at night because it's the time where it's the more cool. So lighting is also, you know, like a very, yeah. you know, like interesting thing. So, so yeah, so I've been learning a lot. <laughs> wow. And that's going to wrap up in January? Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, those are really great words, I think, to end on. And 
thank you so very much, Aziza, for your time and taking You're very welcome. If you're a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilis tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of my favorite things. But don't just take it from me. Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour on its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a CH. All of our tours are private and bespoke, so we take you only to the places that interest you. But for now, it's time to say see you in the new year, when I'll be back with more interviews and some new ideas coming soon. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch with me via my website, mandiamorocco.com. And if you're a fan of Why Morocco, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at mandiamorocco so I can be sure to thank you for helping me share my love of the North African Kingdom. For those celebrating, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. May 2020 be the best year yet. <laughs>